0: Welcome to episode 152 of Effect. Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. My name's Matthew.
1: And I'm Dave. And uh, as usual, we've got an action-packed show. And even so, um, we're now fortnightly. And we've said, don't worry, we'll make them shorter. Uh, If anything, this week's episode is going to be a bit longer than usual, but for very, very good reason. So we are, um, the main thrust of the show today is a discussion that we have around um, historical hacks for role-playing games. How do you make a good role-playing game in a historical setting and what do you need to think about? We have a great special guest on the show for that, Thomas Bolton, a friend of the show and one of our patrons, is going to join us and he's been working on a, um, a Meiji-era Japanese hack for Verson. So he's got a brilliant perspective, but we've got a long conversation about that. There's tons of great stuff in it. We could have gone on for hours, but that's the main thrust of the show. But before we get to that, we have got our usual um, parts. So we have, uh, uh, thanks to our new patrons, we also have a uh, world of gaming discussion, which as usual, we've got quite a few things to talk about in that. So, um... Yeah, I think that's pretty much what we've got lined up for today. But I think, it's re- I think it's really important to thank our patrons because they do listen to the entire duration of our long episodes. And our episodes are often, you know, an hour or more long, uh, you know, in length. So I think it's wonderful yeah, just, that our...
0: <laughs> just because they contribute doesn't mean they actually listen to the whole show. I mean, no, it might well be no. that I, I Peter spe- Jensen, who is the our latest <sighs> contributor, is going to listen until we mention his name, and then go right. That's it. I've heard enough <laughs> now and turn off.
1: Possibly, yes. But, <laughs>
0: but th- thank you, Peter Jensen. Thank um, you. Yes, uh, he has not only uh, joined the Patreon, he's also joined the Discord. Uh, so uh, we've had a bit of a chat with him as well. Um, Brilliant. But yeah, he's our only patron, so we we had a massive bonus number of patrons uh, a couple of weeks ago this this is the only one we've had in the last couple of weeks but frankly that's a bit bit of a relief I mean I was worried I was gonna be getting too many patrons
1: <laughs> you can never have too many patrons because say the patrons we've no, got are all brilliant true. and we have a wonderful little community there so if you are tempted you can join us um, at, the, at the at the bottom tier and join our conversations on discord and we we've got a thriving little community going now thanks to thanks to our our wonderful our wonderful patrons actually they make the community naturally enough
0: i'm going to say that bottom tier is great value i'll be just looking at some other sort of podcast uh, patronage schemes and the stuff that our bottom tier get is amazing you know they get uh, to join covid cafe which is our regular uh, weekly um uh, sort of get together that we only started because of lockdown and because our patrons had bought us Zoom. But, um, you know, there are some where for a top tier of a, of a podcast, you get to join a monthly conversation like that. Mm. We do it every week and we do it for all our tiers. So, and, we, uh,
1: and we expect, we expect um, people to have a, a beer with us. Um, unless, of course, you don't drink alcohol, in which case we expect you to have a beverage of your choice. Yeah, yeah, it
0: may be breakfast time for some of our viewers. That's true. So
1: that is Thomas does we're not encouraging
0: us. early morning drinking. <laughs> no, unless unless you want us to encourage you to drink in the early morning, then we'll do that as well. Because you know <laughs> we don't have any moral qualms about it.
1: No, no exactly. Just just yes. Anyway, um, on that little bit of self promotion, um, I just wanted to mention a couple of things that uh, that we've we've got going before we get into the world of gaming. It kind of reflects into the world of gaming anyway. Um, I recently put up my. First solo um, uh, production on Drive Through RPG on the Free League Workshop. With uh, I have to credit Matthew your help to get through. Yeah, the, not the,
0: entirely oh, solo the, now, well, and mostly the, solo. The Ninety-nine point nine percent well, solo.
1: Well, no, I don't think it's that much solo. The content is a hundred percent solo, but Absolutely, the actual yeah. the actual delivery is probably 80-20 because I couldn't have done it without your help to get through that bloody bloody template
0: oh my that gosh. word template is a nightmare i mean it word is. for doing this sort of stuff is a nightmare but as you discovered using um indesign which is you know the proper tool for the job is also really complex for somebody like you who hasn't been trained in indesign yeah
1: um, i i, I look I, mean, I say this I, every
0: time i mention it that you know i have been trained I've, I've been trading DTP since uh, the days of Aldous PageMaker. I've had actual professional training in InDesign. And even I, every time I open it up, because it's not my day job, I have to remember how to use it. So, yeah. Uh, I, I, yes. I pity anybody has to learn.
1: I looked I looked at the learning curve and realised that I'd get halfway up it and I would fall to my death. So um, I decided not to bother. <clears throat> not on this occasion anyway. One day, maybe. Um, but then but- you resort
0: to Word and Word is also a nightmare for this sort of stuff. But we, we, we uh, got through we, it in the end we and made it, it looks managed- lovely.
1: Thank you. Yeah, so um, it's, it's called the Coriolis Planetarium, the Mirren Chain. And it's a um, a summary of all the systems in the Miran chain. So there's over a hundred planets and asteroid belts, uh, all of which are beautifully illustrated in color, with a um, foundation summary of each one. And it's um yeah it's on there for four ninety nine four dollars ninety nine and forty one pages of stuff. So if you're interested, go and have a look. Um, if enough people are interested, I will. Do the other three the Sedal route, the Algor route, and the De Baron circle. Um, but it's quite, Excellent. A, lot, it's quite and, a lot of effort
0: um, would, would you say it's a handy resource for people that don't want to randomly generate their systems?
1: I would say exactly that. It's not only a handy resource for those who don't want to generate their own systems, but it's got lots of ideas and plot hooks and some bits and bobs about some of the, some sort of. Factions within factions and some of that stuff. So there's loads of ideas for GMs who are looking for something to um, you know, to help them populate their campaign with a few other ideas that um, that they haven't come up Excellent. with.
0: Excellent. And that's available in the Free League Workshop on DriveThruRPG.
1: That is, yes, absolutely. Um, it's done really well so far. I've had about 28 sales in this first four or five days, which is brilliant. So
0: you're a little over halfway towards being a copper bestseller.
1: I am. Yes. So, what else? What else do we know that's a copper or a silver bestseller,
0: Matthew? Ah, oh, well, I know a couple of other things So the silver bestsellers, <laughs> what a segue, and they that was, are what a segue
1: that was just.
0: <laughs> that, yes, uh, but those silver bestsellers uh, are our uh, Coriolis calendar, which is a big hit with the community, uh, which has been beautifully designed by John Salquist and I, um, and that's you know, even though it's a silver bestseller, and over a hundred of you already have it um and there are plenty more of you out there who who frankly should use it as a wonderful tool for organizing your campaign particularly if you're working out how long it takes to go through all the systems of the mirror and chain that <laughs> dave has uh, just laid out for you yes and is. also my start adventure for Vason, uh summer uh, in december that's just gone over silver earlier on this week so uh, that's, thank that's you to great. everybody that's bought those
1: and that that summer in december is a it's a very, very nice, um, sort of almost gentle in tone, but with, with some really, what's the word I'm looking for, some bittersweet undertones to it. Um,
0: yeah, I wanted to make it a relic, because it was going to be, if you recall, uh, back last year when we were expecting to go to a bunch of conventions for Free League, Yeah, it was going to be a sort of demo game for the new thing that was coming out. Yeah. And I didn't really want to spoil it. I didn't want to make it too horrific for that convention market. It does have some horror elements in there, but it also kind of has a way of working without them. So if you don't know who yeah. your visitors are, uh, or you know, if, you've, um, if your players are sensitive to one of the big issues in there, which I won't spoil for anybody, it's got advice on running it without that particularly yeah. triggering element in it.
1: And even, um, even, but even that element is, is kind of a sort of fairy tale horror with a sort of bittersweet touch to it so yes it, it is a challenging thing to deal with so not everybody will want to and as you say you've you've very sensibly put in a way of managing the scenario without that um but i thought it's really good i've really i really enjoyed it you yeah, it's a very very nice little scenario
0: excellent and also um <clears throat> This might be, I, I was going to say, uh, let's talk about uh, a, another product that is available for people uh, if they want to buy it. But before we do that, shall we talk about yesterday's brilliant alien, the colony game that we streamed and is available on YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes.
1: Yes. Um, yeah. So this was the the third session. Um, so episode number two, because session one was, or well, the first session was a session zero and yeah, this this episode introduced the um the the, the Commissar office, the, the Marshal's office for the UPP um colony, and it also introduced a couple of LaSalle corporates in a investigation to find a missing scientist. And it it, it actually worked out the the ending is for me as a GM, it was just that beautiful, was just perfect. It was really good. Um, no spoilers if you want to go and, and watch the show. Um, but as a GM, you you have things in mind, and particularly around sort of the naming of the episode. And often the name of the episode doesn't necessarily relate that closely to what happens. But in this one, things panned out in a way that um, everything just came together at the end perfectly. So uh, it was a great moment for me as a GM, and everyone seemed to enjoy it. Um, yes and for me
0: as a player what i really enjoyed is i've always been concerned about whether the alien universe can carry a campaign unless you're meeting a monster every week that kills half the party yeah and here i guess in a way there was a monster but it was a metaphorical monster Mm -hmm. Uh, or no it wasn't even a metaphorical monster it was the real monsters that we all have to deal with um about passion and um uh greed GT and things and like abuse. that
1: um, yeah
0: um and uh so it was a really good game to play and it yeah as you say th- partly through your design dave but also mostly through um one of our players getting stressed out and, and that's the other thing i really liked how that stress mechanic worked in a relatively unstressful situation for most of us i only acquired two stress points in the yeah. whole session um uh, will, who's one of the players uh, uh, I'll let him explain his character when you watch it, but he he acquired more stress points so he was a bit panicky but then just the the way the dice fell in that final moment yeah you couldn't have planned that you couldn't have written it in or you could have written it in, but it would have been very false but uh so I think it's,
1: uh, in effect as, as as with a lot of these things as a GM, you have in mind what might transpire and particularly with the 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 naming of the the, the episode the episode's called. Um, no rose without the thorn, and the 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 way the dice came together with Will's actions just underlined the perfect how perfect that title was for the yeah um, absolutely for the episode. And that's what I was. So of course come I out, credit the dice doesn't. with that,
0: but you might credit your GMing skills.
1: I think it's a bit of both. I think what you do as a GM sometimes is is make your own luck. And you you present something that might result in a perfect moment like that. And it, sometimes it, it comes off and, and sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you are rewarded. Yes, exactly.
0: So I'm sure you're the sort of person then that would like to have a T-shirt that said, that's why I'm the best GM. <laughs> I,
1: Did
0: I, you that's... see where I was going here? I was working towards this segue is... a full five minutes ago.
1: You do realise that we, we we spoil the Segways by telling everyone that we've been working towards a segue. The segue, I think, is supposed to be a spontaneous, natural movement rather than working behind the scenes like mad to make it happen. But anyway, yes, it was a very good segue. Well done, Matt. Yes. And, and <laughs>
0: uh, so we have got on Redbubble a new product. Um, and it's our first, if you like, profit-taking product. So if you buy it, then uh, a, a contribution comes to the support of the... Uh, of the uh of the podcast eventually when you've earned enough you don't get it straight away you have to like mm-hmm. have i don't know at least twenty dollars or something to be able to claim it um so we're, we're a long way off that at the moment but we are getting a little cut of this and it's a range of t-shirts with a very discreet uh, effect logo over the uh over your heart as one of our um patrons called it that says uh, that's why i'm the best gm <laughs> which you may have heard just once or
1: twice um, <laughs> over the last few years on yes. this podcast yes indeed um
0: nice so there we go that's our first proper our first proper merch i guess that is um and i think that brings the end of our self-promotion sequence
1: <laughs> yeah i have to say i mean I, I quite enjoyed talking about our stuff but it, it did feel slightly odd just go buy our stuff buy our stuff you go um so I don't know how often we'll do this or maybe next time we'll keep it really short
0: but, yeah I, d- um, I don't think we need to do it every time but I do no. feel there's a lot of stuff a lot of stuff that's happened that we should do this time but um, now we come onto a sequence about buying other people's stuff
1: <laughs> yes okay All right what what do you want to talk about in the world of gaming today then Matthew?
0: Okay, well, there's one I particularly wanted to bring to your attention, Dave, and it's related to a future buy Our Stuff segment that we're going to do when we finally release Tales of the Old West. Uh, Regular listeners will know that Dave and I are working on a Western-themed game, and one of the challenges that we're dealing with there, of course, is... We want to be um, authentic to the feeling of the Old West, but also we want to be able to make it inclusive and working with the Native American communities to do that. Um, But this is a game that is called Coyote and Crow, Mm -hmm. and it is written by entirely Native American authors. And it looks like an interesting game. I'm feeling really poor at the moment, so I haven't yet backed it on Kickstarter. We'll put a link in the show notes. But I think before the campaign, I will be splashing out at least for a PDF.
1: Okay, how far how far are they into the campaign?
0: Um, they started about a week ago. I think they've got a little under 20 days to run.
1: Okay. Now you see,
0: I should maybe have prepped it and gone to Kickstarter so that I can I'm give you just, all the facts. Here. I'm
1: just looking at it now. Uh, i trying to pick it up.
0: So what it is, essentially, um, and this is a terrible generalisation that I hesitate to say, but it is kind of what Wakanda and Black Panther have done for Afrofuturism is that's kind of happening on the North American continent. So it's an uncolonized North America and a slightly futurist vision of what a uh, Native American community might be like in such a situation.
1: Yes. I'm just looking at it now and it's it's all about a, a, a it's about it's kind of like a counterfactual um yes yeah, yeah so we might talk a bit about that later on but um counterfactuality
0: uh, yes i mean um, it's it's definitely futuristic as opposed to historic um you know what they're trying to do is not you know one one of the challenges we have with toto is you know the story of the west is a story of colonization yeah and so um you know, however we manage to treat Native American uh, characters in our game, they are still part of a story of colonization. This one cuts out, cuts that out entirely. So yeah. it's an entirely uncolonized game. They did do an interesting update uh, just uh, yesterday or today, actually, saying, but it doesn't mean it's only for Native American players. Um, it is something that non-natives can bring to the table as well, because... Um, I think there's been a few people saying, well, you know, I'm not Native American. Should I even be playing this? Or is that cultural appropriation? And as they say in their, mm. in their update, yeah. uh, appropriation okay. at its root is about taking what we're doing is giving. And what we're giving you is a fictional. It's not the traditions or history of any real world tribe or nation.
1: Yeah. Um, I, we could have a long conversation about cultural appropriation. Um, but I think again, this is this is a game of what if, and it's yeah. uh, like you say, it's about uh, a future that you know never happened. So it is a bit of a fantasy in that sense, and I, I think it would be ridiculous to suggest that only Native Americans could play this game, because if if, if nothing else, and again we talk about this a bit later on, yeah, uh, you know, a game, particularly a hist- historical or counterfactual one, um, what it can do is teach people a little bit about the realities of today. Um, I won't go too far into it, but I think absolutely there's 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 no way a game like this, um, we, you know, which they're not doing, but people should never feel that a game like this is reserved for those who have a right to play it, because I think everybody has a right to play it, because a lot of people would learn something from it.
0: Anyway, it's doing pretty well at the moment. It's uh, where are we at? Uh, so the target was in, in British money. Um, let me do it in US dollars. That's probably better. They had an eighteen thousand dollar target. They're looking at uh, almost half a million US dollars mm-hmm. now, and they've still got twenty days to run. So um, yeah, I've, so that looks looks like a good thing. I think I'm going to put a buy on that one.
1: Yeah, I think I might. Um, I haven't looked at it before. Uh, I might well give it a punt. It does look quite interesting, I have to say. And some of the artwork again is quite enticing. It's got a uh, one of the artwork here on, on Kickstarter is. Um, by, by Jennifer Lang, but it looks reminiscent of the great Martin Grip in its sense and its its style. I think that's very nice.
0: Yeah. Now, the next thing I think is not for me, but it is has been insanely popular. Uh, and that is one and a half million pounds. What does that mean in dollars? That means over $2 million already. And they've only been going for a few days. They've still got 27 days to go. And this is... Pixels, the electronic dice.
1: Yeah, I've heard the conversation that we've been having on Discord about it. I haven't really engaged with it because it's not the kind of thing that I'm going to back. No. Um, so what, what exactly is it?
0: So these are digital dice. For a start, they light up. They've got different multicolored LEDs. I think they can be set to light up so that when you get the top number on a D twenty or D six, um, it you know it gives you a little light show. So, are or they ac- possibly are they actually, the bottom
1: are, if it's a they, roll under. Are they physical dice? Sorry, is, are they physical? They are dice? physical dice, right. so but they just...
0: interact with your digital network. So right. I guess, particularly if uh, you know where a lot of us are playing online at the moment now. As uh, as a community, uh, we and our patrons are entirely happy to have people roll their dice off screen and be honest about what yeah. the uh, what the what the answers are. Um, but this would be a thing where you could roll your dice and then it appears up in the chat mode, so everybody okay. can see what the dice actually rolled. I think that's something that's featured there. They are obvious. I mean, they're. You know, I think that they're quite a technological marvel. Mm-hmm. They're way out of my price band for DICE, however. Ah, uh-huh, right. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm not in the running, particularly now that I'm feeling poor. Um, but I'm not even sure that were I feeling rich, I'd have gone for it. Uh, our, our friend Andy, who, you know, uh, loves to hack these sort of things. I think he's genuinely interested. Mm. but I think he might only be getting a couple of D6s to have a play around with, Um I think one of our patrons worked out it costs about four hundred dollars to get a whole set of D and D
1: dice. Wow! Okay, blimey.
0: And our, our friend and patron Phil, of course, pointed out that a whole set of D and D dice is only about half a set of Dungeon Crawl Classics dice, which is what he plays. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I don't think you can get any of the uh, DCC uh, shaped dice in this.
1: Right. So I think there's there's, there's something in this about. Um, possibly making uh, making it easier for those who might have a um you know a disability or something to to engage in the game better so if you're blind perhaps um it's a no yeah of,
0: absolutely and um, i do think you know but, frankly but then, as i get older yeah,
1: but i but i guess i think then the price point needs to be such that doesn't price most people out of the market now okay it's not yeah. it's done very well on the kickstarter so obviously people are buying into it um but not everyone like you say could afford a lot of money for what is just a bunch of dice
0: no, but I guess the, you know these guys might be um, first. Uh, what do I call it? You know, this this is this is an early attempt. Pioneers, maybe. Yeah. In in a few years' time, we'll all be playing with digital dice, and mm-hmm. they'll all be as cheap as chips. Um, because
1: yeah, I, I certainly think there's a, there's definitely something about having um, digital dice that allows you online to see everybody's dice rolls um, mm-hmm. as you roll them, which I think is is fine. The the I don't particularly like rolling dice on things like Roll20 and stuff because it takes some of the fun out of having a handful of dice and there's something about that. I but really also,
0: resent, uh, you know, tapping in the code on yeah. a chat thing for dice. I hate um, that.
1: But also I think, you know, the way we do it works really well in that, you know, we, we trust one another enough that we're not going to cheat in rolling roll of the dice because then that just, you know, you cheat yourself more than you cheat anybody else. Yeah. So it's, um. Yeah. So, well, interesting. And obviously it's doing very well. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't think I'll be backing it again. I've got a lot of dice and, um, yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm
0: I'm just stunned about the number of dice Kickstarters there are on Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, doing doing a dice Kickstarter is uh, uh, almost a guarantee of, of success. <laughs> yeah. People seem to buy all sorts of odd-shaped, well, not odd-shaped, but, you know, interestingly designed
1: varieties yeah
0: or different materials or whatever um but um frankly i've got enough i've got enough dice
1: and i don't need to spend a lot of money on on dice no
0: no my brother for a birthday a few years ago bought me a lovely set of heavy metal dice which i really enjoy but that that's my premium set of dice and actually in a way i kind of prefer the plastic ones
1: yeah, it's funny, isn't it? So I, I bought a, a couple of sets of, of metal dice, some from um, our friend and, and patron um, Neil from Paladin Gaming. Paladin um, Gaming,
0: we'll put a link in the show notes.
1: Yeah, beautiful dice, really beautiful. But those and the other metal dice I got, um, they just kind of sit as a as, as a display model almost now because I mm. I kind of I don't find that I use them very much and I. The dice I use now, mostly just throughout every game, are my Alien dice. Actually, um, but but yeah, I mean they're beautiful dice. I recommend go and have a look at Paladin Gaming and what they've got on there. There's some great stuff, and and obviously um, yeah, buy some stuff if you like it. But uh, it's a really good, really good, really good dice. But I'm not going to be buying any more through Kickstarter right now. I think is the bottom line.
0: Uh, are you going to be buying the terminator rpg that is currently on kickstarter we'll put a link in the show notes no right okay it's by uh your friend of mine andrew gaskers
1: yes andrew Gasker. and I, I, think I think there's a lot to it actually um i was i was sort of slightly joking in saying if i just say no we can then move on and reduce the length of the episode but um <laughs> so i think that there's there's, there's a couple of things here. So for me as a player, I would be quite interested in playing a role-playing game that was set during the the Skynet War. And playing... Uh, yeah, yeah. you don't want to play the robots, really. Playing the humans fighting the robots before ter- the, the Terminator in the chronology. Right. Including, obviously, the time-travelling chronology. Um, I think that would be a fun sort of military survival campaign. There's probably quite a lot of games out there you could do that with without needing a whole fresh game. I'm not so interested in playing the actual film Terminator or Terminator 2. Because I think it's quite it's quite limited, it's quite narrow mm-hmm. in in it in its scope. And we were talking about this on the Discord. Um well, how is this different from Alien? Doesn't doesn't Alien suffer from exactly the same thing? And I think we were we were well certainly in my view is there's probably a wider world or wider um, sort of canon to Alien than, uh, than Terminator. And also, Terminator is so tightly bound by the Connor family, by John and Sarah Connor, hmm. who are critical elements of the narrative, whereas actually Ripley in Alien, which would be the, uh, the comparison, isn't critical to the narrative at all. And so I think, I think there's a difference um, in approach there. I, I looked at it. I'm, I'm not so keen on the artwork in it. It's, it's, it's beautifully done. I think the
0: artwork is lovely, but, but I think you and I have not, been spoiled by Martin Grip.
1: It's not my style. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a bit like, um, I love some of the artwork in Star Trek adventures, but again, it's not, it's not my style. I think some of that, they're not pictures that I would put up on my wall. Whereas some of the stuff from Martin Grip and Gustav Eklund and, and their elk would be. Um, yeah. So it doesn't draw me in in that way either. It doesn't visually draw me in. Um, yeah, so, so I think there's... there are It'll definitely draw comparisons with Alien. Naturally enough, seeing Drew is, is working on it. Um, the setting stuff will obviously be very deep and very thoroughly thought through and well-written um, with Drew working on it. There'll be lots of stuff to get your teeth into um, from that side but whether the actual game itself, whether you want to sit down at the table and play. Yeah, so, so I guess, you know, if you are doing that Skynet War thing, um, you either forget the canon completely and take John Connor out of it, because otherwise you know what happens. Um, or you you play through something, which again is coming back to a conversation we're having about historical games, where you know the outcome and actually are your players end up just along for the ride and you lose some of your agency in that and some of the narrative power. So, I, so I, I, yeah, um, I love the Terminator films. I don't think I'll be backing the Terminator role-playing game. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, this is one where I firmly can say I very much enjoy Terminator and Terminator 2, uh, but I have no interest in playing in that game in that in that world as it were mm. uh the system is uh the sort of house system for nightfall games now nightfall games yeah. uh created i don't even know how to say this whether it's meant to be pronounced slay or sla industries but that was a game that came out in the 90s at a time when you and i weren't getting to the table much at all and i remember seeing it in as deviant games uh but never once um, maybe flicked, it, flicked through the pages once, never never grokked what the game was about no. or what the system was like. Um, I imagine it will have its fans because it often gets mentioned as uh, a system that people enjoy, but pe- not people of our generation, it, it seems, I think. It's a younger generation of gamers who play yeah. SLA or SLA Industries. Um, and it's the same system as that, so I don't know whether the system feels right for for that sort of game or not. Um,
1: no, again, yes. I don't, like like you, I don't know enough about their their five dice plus success die mechanic to, to to really comment on how the the actual mechanics of the game will work towards this. Maybe you should try and get um you know a starter set for SLA or something, and then give it a go just to get a feel for it. But, yes. Um,
0: or maybe see if any of our patrons are old SLA hands and uh, yeah. can give us a demo. Uh, anyway, they've they've got 409 backers at the moment. They only launched yesterday, so it's not bad. They've uh, hit just a bit under twen- twice their initial goal of £10,000 to get the game out there. Uh, they've therefore crossed off a few um, stretch goals. Uh, but it's not mm-hmm. the fabulous uh success that the one ring has been recently yeah it's just
1: interesting just looking on kickstarter now talking about a quick start they they have a quick start for the terminator here which uh you could pick up straight away so i think i might get that and have a look and um, uh, right maybe maybe next time um how long have they got left on on the on the kickstarter well they've got 20 or 24 days days, to go great so um I'm going to download that and have a look at it, and then maybe we'll talk about Terminator again. Talk next Talk about it time, again
0: in our next program.
1: When, when Excellent still got, idea, Dave.
0: Still got 10 it a, days. a fairer shake of the whip than Absolutely. our other, yeah. Um, because, I mean, again, chat. Yeah,
1: you, know, you do. You do. Yeah, you know, the standard artwork of a Terminator without any flesh coming out of the flames, which is the image on the front of the Kickstart, is a very good one. <laughs> that yeah. does draw. That draws me in. I like that. Um, you know, so that quick this is going to be cover. another
0: of those times when you start off the conversation by saying, "I'm not touching this game." <laughs> oh yes, I've gone for the I've gone for the most expensive
1: <laughs> level. Um, so at the moment, I'm coming from the "No, I'm not going to back this" kind of straight away, I, I, I never had any intention to back it. Let's see where I get in two weeks' time. <laughs> in two um, weeks' time,
0: we may hear a different story. It's possible. Um, yeah, I think though your story will be consistent for the next game that we've got which i think is pre-order i don't think it's a kickstarter but it's a Modifius, and it is actun cthulhu 2d20
1: right yes okay um i haven't played act actun cthulhu um originally the the setting again hasn't really hooked me um in a way that's made me want to have a look at it and bring it to the table i've i've commented on 2d20 um a lot i you know i i i, I uh, the basic system is fine i'm still i still think there are weaknesses with um the momentum threat what dynamic the way it works in the same mm-hmm. way that i think there are weaknesses with the darkness point dynamic in in coriolis uh, although a good gm can make it work really well um uh, and so you know a bad gm or a gm who doesn't quite get it can make it work really badly i think so, so, so I think there's, there's, there's that in there. Um, there's nothing there that makes me go, "Ooh, I must look at it now." Cause just because they're adapting it to a two D twenty system, which is a system that I have enjoyed playing, um, but uh, it's not one that kind of get groups me to the core, as it were.
0: Yeah, I, I very much enjoy playing Star Wars when you've run Star Wars, or indeed when Star other, Trek. Yeah. Uh, uh, pre pre lockdown uh, gamers that I gamed with ran Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, not Wars. Star Trek. Um, but yes, it doesn't grab me now. I think Acton Cthulhu. Uh, we should give uh, the setting praise because all of Modifius came out of their original Acton Cthulhu Kickstarter. I am hmm. led to believe. You okay. Know, they, yeah. they, they were uh, not a company, or maybe they were a company, but they were a very, very small company when they when they kickstarted Acton Cthulhu for the first time. Initially using Savage Worlds and or uh, the Fate, Cthulhu Pop Cthulhu dice set, which I think they'd licensed rule set. Right. So you had it in those two flavors. I think I think they then produced a fake version as well. So in a way, they're bringing Acton Cthulhu home and they are going yeah. home to the place where it all started so i think it will have a lot of fans i think it will do quite well um but i think you and i are saying it's not for us
1: um, yeah i think i mean i've, I've never played it um I'd, and as i said i've never felt the draw to play it so maybe if somebody was going to bring to the table and i had the chance to join in and i'd love to give it a go but um, i don't think i'll be um shilling my dosh on um acting cthulhu
0: Now, I did buy a PDF of the Fate version when I was running for you that um, First World War Veterans Against um, Mm. Alien Body Snatchers
1: game. Yeah, that was a good campaign. Uh, That was a great campaign. It was a great
0: campaign. I didn't actually get much out of it, but I have got it, and it's kind of interesting. But um, pulp-wise, pulp-wise, I am more interested in temples and tombs which we mm. talked about a couple of weeks ago yeah uh, the kickstarter is still going it's got three days to run as we talk so it's maybe got a day or two to run if you're uh, an eager downloader of the um of the podcast yeah
1: we're recording uh, this on the 12th of march 2021 yeah, and
0: it's got three so, days
1: currently yeah. uh on the
0: 12th of march um so if you haven't back that it's it's yeah zero system with some with some interesting tweaks look back at our last episode to see about some more about those tweaks but i'm quite excited by it it's um you know it's a relatively small kickstarter but uh i'm i'm definitely going in for a pdf of that one mm. well i've gone in which is why i'm not spending any more money on pdf sending forever again <laughs> uh,
1: so, so so remind me um in one line what's the what's the capsule summary for why you're backing it because i'm i'm i haven't backed it yet but i'm um, I'm thinking It's about year it.
0: zero Could, engine Indiana Jones. You, you don't <laughs> what, need to know any more than that.
1: What's not to like? Okay, <laughs> that's fair enough. <laughs> but also, okay. interestingly,
0: uh, you know, we had a very interesting conversation with a creator, Christopher Gray, about how he's decolonizing those sorts of stories as well. Because, yeah, actually, at the end of the day, you know, Indiana Jones is a white guy going to a native culture. That should be in a British or American museum. And um <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly it
0: is and it's, it these is adventures to I think, this, yeah uh, but a bit of a twist on that. So it looks fun to me. Okay, cool. Right. Is that it? That I think is everything yeah. in the world of gaming. Cool for this week. So, shall we introduce Thomas?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. And um we're going to listen to what Dave has to say first, and then we're going to come back and tell him how wrong he is.
1: <laughs> As usual. <laughs> but then, yeah. you know, knowing, knowing your competence, it, you know, I don't take your opinion anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I worry That's- if Thomas doesn't, doesn't agree with me, but Matt, you know, I don't care about you very much, really. Who hasn't enjoyed a great movie, book, or TV series that recreates an historical setting. For me, this includes things like Deadwood, I Claudius, Dangerous Liaisons, Black Sails, The Masters of Rome books by Colleen McCulloch, The Lonesome Dub series by Larry McMurtry, and the medieval books of Nigel Tranter and Sharon Penman. History is replete, and I mean it really packed full of drama, fascinating settings, Exciting and complex characters and stories so thrilling, you literally cannot make them up. How many of us have ever spent a moment, either at an historical site or watching some great recreation on the screen, when you place yourself in the shoes of someone long dead, and feel that moment of excitement and awe of being allowed to glimpse a world that is lost to us? For me, walking the paths of the Forum in Rome, standing where Marius, Sulla and Caesar once stood, was one such moment. But I've had many, at castles, archaeological digs, battle sites and more modern historical sites. Historical recreations, from medieval jousts and melee's to recreated huts, hovels and roundhouses, also place you there, in the centre of a world that we can only marvel at from our distant place in their futures. So why do so many game designers feel the need to add the supernatural? or aliens, or magic and mysticism, into a gaming world that is perfectly good without them? Are players put off by an historical game? And if they are, why? I suspect that much of this is born out of a general lack of historical knowledge, a failure to grasp how exciting history is, and the weirdness is added as a novel gimmick to help pull in the punters. I do get that not everyone has the kind of interest in history that I have, but I think a lot of people do, and especially those who want a mature role-playing experience, rather than the simpler joy of a hack-and-slash dungeon crawl. So I reckon there's a big base of players out there, for whom a well-crafted historical setting that allows them to explore a different time, and the motivations and worldviews of the people of that time would be right up their street. But anyway. How can you bring your favourite time in history to the table and make it a compelling and exciting world for a player to explore, without committing what are, at least for me, any of the cardinal sins of historical RPGs? Adding vampires, adding werewolves, adding spooks and spectres, aliens and magic. It's just so unnecessary. For an historical game to work well, it's going to need two key things. An evocative setting, something that makes the players feel like they've stepped back in time, and a way into understanding their characters, the people who made their history, but who also themselves were made by the time in which they lived. I'll take these one at a time. An evocative setting. In my opinion, it has to feel real, rather than be real. For many people in past centuries, the lived experience would have been hard, really hard, Life expectancy would be short, disease would be rampant, child mortality would be terrible, and in many times there would be little or no understanding of natural forces like earthquakes and lightning, and these would have been either terrifying or portents of bad things to come. So you need to find the right balance between authenticity, making it feel right, and recreation or simulation, it being exactly right. There are a few reasons for this. This is intended to be a game, and the experience needs to be fun for the players. Having your character die every five minutes of cholera or sepsis from a scratch isn't going to enhance the experience, but having a sense of the dangers from disease might. For me, the first priority of an historical game should not be to educate the players. For a start, an interested player may well know the period you're talking about better than you and doesn't need to be educated by your game. Secondly, most game designers won't be expert historians, and creating this authentic feel will be a critical challenge for them, although I know of some companies that employ recognised experts in their field to get the history just right. This point chimes with my previous one. It should feel authentic, rather than try to be a history textbook. I'm not saying an historical game shouldn't try to educate people, As a historian by training, I'm all for people learning more about history. But perhaps a game is better seen as a gateway drug to pique the interest of those coming to it to go and do more of their own research. My third comment here is that if you set yourself and your game up as an historical authority, then you are leaving yourself open to critique of your historical credentials. And this may take energy and attention away from the fun of the game itself admittedly most role players would understand and cope with any minor inaccuracies, but there are some games that are notable for having a fan base for whom this might be an issue Now to my second point about getting into the minds of the people who populated that time in history. I think this is really important for an historical game to be successful. Each era and place had its own context, its own history, its own community and religious backdrop and a game needs to offer that context in a way that the players can make sense of. If these historical contexts can also be woven into the mechanics of the game itself, then even better. That will ensure the players feel the context every time they roll the dice. I'm thinking along the lines of the influence of the gods in an ancient Greek, ancient Rome, or Viking game, for example, but in a way that reflects the people's belief system, and how it might affect the way they behave or feel rather than actually calling on the gods to basically give you some magic. What other challenges are there to bringing a great historical game to life? Well, there are a few, but I'll concentrate on four. First, easing your GM and her players into the era in question. History in big handfuls is complex and covers long periods. What I mean by this is you may want to play a Roman RPG, for example... Rome lasted from 750 BC to 400 AD, and the experience and context varies wildly throughout that thousand years. Even a game around a shorter period of history will cover a wide range of dates, settings and developments. On the one hand, this can be a good thing. It offers lots of variation within a historical theme for a GM, and think of all the other era supplements you can push out once the game is a bestseller. But on the other hand, it means the game needs to advise a GM about how and when to start their campaign, or at least offer options for managing this. Allied to this is the idea of historical reenactment. Now, players are going to want to live through or play through parts of history, or particular things that happened. And this raises an interesting question Does setting a game or a scenario within a well known historical event, say D Day, for example, potentially damage the player experience. In that D-Day example, does it take away from player agency, or at least the illusion of that, if we know that the outcome of the end of D-Day plus one is an allied victory, in the sense that they had established the beachhead in Normandy? In this case, it might just feel like the players are along for the ride, and their success or failure matters little to the overall story. I really like the idea that the player's actions will have some bearing on the overall progress of the campaign. So in fact, the players are making new history in their game from the point the game starts. It's a tougher ask for a GM, but not an impossible one. Third, some players will approach a history game with many preconceptions and stereotypes in mind. They might even actively want to play the pulpy Hollywood version of any given period and historical game might want to account for this. There will be certain things that are so associated with the period in question, rightly or wrongly, you know, Romans and orgies, Mayans and human sacrifice, or gangsters and Tommy guns and so on, that you might want to include them, or include the option to have them for the GM, even if they're not strictly accurate. Back to my authenticity versus reality discussion earlier. And fourth, and more seriously, History was often dark, and the way humans behaved towards one another was frequently unpleasant, to say the least. But history is history. People did behave in ways which are morally reprehensible by modern standards, if not the moral standards of the day. Slavery, racism, genocide, human sacrifice, the position and treatment of women in society, all these and more besides happened, and are still happening but that's another whole discussion. How should we handle these issues? This is what I think, but I accept that others may take a different view. We cannot hide it. Whitewashing the bad bits out of history is simply wrong. This is one place where the educational element of an historical game is essential. We must be respectful of the history, of the lived experience of those who suffered in their lifetimes, and offer an objective perspective, avoiding lazy and cruel stereotypes at all costs. We ought to avoid moral relativism, by which I mean we shouldn't acquit those who perpetrated bad things on the basis that they were products of their time and only behaving as their culture expected. But we do our best to place ourselves in that time and context, as only then do we get a better understanding of the full historical picture. But we are trying to make a game here. It is supposed to be fun. I think that by having an understanding of the context, by avoiding bad stereotypes and with careful game design, we can square all these circles. I for one can't wait to explore some of these histories, have a lot of fun, learn something about these times and maybe learn something useful for us in modern life. After all, we should study history lest we doom ourselves to repeat it.
0: Well, this is a great discussion uh, uh dave that you've you've made this essay, and of course you're looking at um, a couple of games of firelock games now but um but Thomas, you're also working on a couple of historical games. Do you want to tell everybody a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I'm doing a Japanese hack of Verson set in meiji period Japan, so that's roughly depending on who you ask. Uh, 1868 through to, and I've chosen 1905 because that's the um, end of uh, Japan's nascent growth and its rise as a world power begins because it defeats the Russians uh, in two set-piece fleet battles and in a land war. Um, So as a sort of top and tail, you go from a feudal society effectively becoming an industrial superpower in just on... Depending on who you ask, forty or fifty-two years or something. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty, pretty staggering. And there's no culture that there's no culture that does that. And since Verson is all about change and about the upending of rituals and society and rural life to urban life, it's a perfect setting for it. Mm, Yeah. And then the second, and that's so. Therefore, that's before
0: you move on. Let's just tell our listeners if they're interested in Verson, it should be out at the time of recording. Should be out a couple of weeks after the time of broadcasting. That's your plan. Isn't yeah.
3: It? And it'll that
0: be on the, the 3D plan. workshop. And we'll make a bit of a fuss about it on the social media. Yeah. So if you're interested yeah. in Versen in Mythic Japan, then then it will be shortly available.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what else are you working on? Uh, and so that's at one end of the spectrum, actually, because that's still very mythic. So that's got supernatural elements, which we are going to talk a bit, least a little bit about. Um, so it's about taking elements of history and then applying them to a more mythic setting. Um, And then I'm doing a game set in the Crusader States in the sort of late 1200s. So give or take 1283 through to 1288, um, depending on, once again, where I finally draw that line. Uh, And that is going to have no magical elements. Uh, No mystic elements, nothing. It's raw, uh, brutal history from the period. Uh, And it's actually factional politics and characters being sort of caught in the winds of factional politics that play out through this kingdom and that's fall because its inevitable end is uh, the fall at the Horns of Hattin and Saladin's conquest of Jerusalem that follows soon after. Um, And that's a both of them are Year Zero games, but obviously the second one I'm writing new rules, which is um, unusual for me because I don't usually do Mm. that. Um, So there's a whole stack of mechanics that I have to build out to make that setting work. Yeah, Yeah, so that's what I'm doing.
0: And longer term, have you got plans for something about Stalingrad?
2: Yeah. So (laughs) I had a thought which is very much reliant on how much I love Anthony Beaver as a historian, um, Mm -hmm. which is I think you could make a horror game using real history only, without necessarily going to sort of like a Pol Pot story. And I think Mm -hmm. Stalingrad in winter in 1943 and 1940, late 1942, uh, sorry, 1942, 1943, uh, over those two years, is the perfect setting for survivalist horror. Hmm. And I reckon that'll be intense and probably only a (laughs) one-shot because it's the awful setting. Uh, but. Also, really, really interesting and really material, right? Like it's a mm. really interesting piece of history.
0: And Oof. we haven't, you haven't started work on that yet.
2: No, that's
0: so that'll be a long the time in
2: the future. Yeah, sixty yeah. twelve months.
1: Cool. Yeah. And just and just, a just bit catch about us Firelock. up on what they're
0: doing for Firelock at the moment. Yeah,
1: so um, Firelock, I've got two games in the works at the moment that uh, that I'm helping out on. One is called Under the Black Sail, which is a seventeenth seventeenth uh, century Pirates of the Caribbean but with a uh, gritty take to it rather than a Johnny Depp take to it. And that's quite a long way through um, production. They're hoping to kickstart that later in the spring, early summer um, of this year. And then they're working on War Stories, which is a uh, World War II um, game. These are both Year Zero Engine games as well. And that's looking, in the first instance at least, to sort of re- recreate the uh, experience of the 101st Airborne or the 6th Airborne British Division through the war in Normandy, 1944 to 45, And they're looking really interesting and really exciting. Um, But obviously, we've got other things going on as well. So you and I, Matthew, are working on Tales of the Old West still, Mm -hmm. and we'll ought to get and move on with that, I think. Um, Yeah, I'm
0: testing that at the moment, and I've uh, immediately come across a problem that. (laughs) We're only the first session in
1: um, uh, well that's good that's what playtesting is all about yes um and then i've got aspirations to do a ancient roman year zero hack as well as uh, i'd like to do a medieval um wars of the roses period um 15th century mm. uh game not necessarily i'm considering doing it outside of year zero engine doing something a little bit different um, but that one's in the early stages so there's lots of historical hysterical, historical stuff. Um, yeah, that, that's going around all of our minds at the moment. So cool. the opportunity to talk about this, uh, today is really, uh, is really well-timed actually.
0: So we listened to your essay and one of the first points I want to slightly challenge slightly. I broadly, I agree with your point, but I just wonder whether, um, whether it just needs a little bit of nuance and that is you talk about obviously what we're not trying to do here is edu as a gm running a historical game you're not trying to educate your players
1: yeah but not, as your, I... not as your not as your primary function
0: for sure no, yeah but there is an element isn't there of all whatever whatever we're playing as as players, generally, we are exploring a world and learning about it. And I think you particularly in a sort of, even in a gamist mode, even if you're, you know, when when we were kids, we used to pore over the rules because we had time to pore over the rules in a way that maybe we don't now with grown-ups, um, <laughs> you know, partly trying to break them and get that min-max combination that makes us a superhero within the game, but also really trying to get in-depth into the ludic world Um, So I just wanted to counter your, as a GM, we're not trying to educate people with, but often as players, we are trying to learn.
1: Mm. So I think, I I don't think your view and my view are actually at odds in any sense. So I I, I just think that there's, uh, if you want to make a historical game accessible and have people look at it and go, oh, this is going to be cool, what you don't want to do is have them thinking that they're going to be preached at about history when they come yes. to your game. And the, you know, I make the point that you, know, you you will be learning about history if you are playing in a historical setting, but being taught what you know the history, you know, your your game shouldn't be a history textbook. It's uh, it, it's trying to evoke that period and that setting, make people feel like they're uh, living in it, make them feel like they understand what the people who formed that period in history and were formed by that period in history, uh, what their lives were like, and what their experience was like. And I think, as I say, right at the start, if you get that right, then people are going to be fascinated and kind of awe inspired about this glimpse into another world they're getting. And hopefully that is a entry drug for them to go and buy some proper historical books on the period and do some research of their own and, and some reading and, and, and get, you know, in, improve their knowledge and gain an increased love of history by doing that. I think the one thing I mentioned towards the end of the, of the um, uh, end of the piece is, obviously, the we can come back to this later. But just as a, just as a marker, yeah, history is pretty grim, mm. uh, particularly in the way that some humans treated other humans at different times, and that certainly is something that I don't think a game should whitewash or hand wave. You need to challenge that. You need to expose it but you need to try and do that in a non-stereotypical and respectful way to try and, again, educate people about how shitty humans have been to humans over history.
0: Well, let's come back to that, I think yeah. that you're right, <clears throat> It is an important point, and it's worth unpacking some more, but we'll come back to that later in the show. Let's start off, though, with evoking the period. Because I'm reminded of a discussion that we had So our... Um, five dollar patrons and above uh, get access to all our kind of um, work in progress stuff for Tales of the Old West and when we released I don't know 0.02 or 0.03 version of those rules one of the comments was oh I need a timeline I need to know what technology Mm. is out Mm. at these different times Um, and you know for me interestingly that's Uh, That's, I think, a a perfect illustration of both your point and mine, in that uh, you're saying we don't need to educate people. Um, So we hadn't put a timeline in. I mean, it is only a 0.3 version anyway. So maybe there will be a timeline in the future. But we hadn't put a timeline in. We didn't think that was the most important thing to stress. And yet, some of our potential players were going, "Oh, that's what I really need." And this, despite the fact that uh, this is, you know, only a couple of hundred years ago, we've got Wikipedia. You know if you want to know when dynamite was invented, you can find out when dynamite was invented mm. um so yeah where do we you know things like timelines and that sort of how how much of that has to go into a a set of rules What do you think, Thomas?
2: Yeah, so I deliberately chose not to put one in Japanese version because I'm following the aesthetic that is set up by Free League for their vest and setting in general. So they've sort of pastiched across historical change. And having said that, though, every one of the modules that I... Well, every game that I've run, I've gone away and read a piece of history and then hung it off the explicit event. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm failing. Um, <laughs> uh, I was, I, I was actually thinking about this timeline question really hard because when I do Crusades... It's a really short period of history. It's five years probably that the game will be set through. Um, and a lot goes on and it's really busy. Um, and I'm, and we're going to, I think we, we'll uh, once again, a marker for the future, we're going to have a conversation about, you know, alternate histories and how do you manage that? Um mm. Uh, so timelines have a risk because once you set up a timeline, you're setting up a series of events and you're either declaring them as targets or you're declaring them as limiters, mm. right? So <clears throat> the player's going to go, well, I don't like, you know, I'm going to change that moment in history or not. But I did think of an example where it matters a lot. So there's really material technological change events that occur in history that can be really important for a game with a historical context. I mean, they don't have to be military. Everyone talks about the military ones, but there's actually lots of other things that happen in history that are really material. And if one of those bisects your game, and so for Japanese vests, and you guys have both gone through the Life Path Generator, right? Mm-hmm. I have hung the Life Path Generator on a single historical event right smack in the middle, which mm. is the um, coronation of the Major Emperor in 1868. So I've bisected my timeline explicitly because that is such a big deal. So I am using the timeline, um, but I'm not. I'm not writing out a giant mm. table of you know on the 23rd of July at this time and at this date this happened mm. because I don't. I think we're trying to get people to get the vibe of the thing, and when they get hung up on each explicit date, it becomes like a. I don't know. It becomes a cage. It becomes a yeah. cage. Becomes no, I cage, agree. I think, I think it becomes
1: this, a cage. This, this this sort of plays to my point about easing your GM and the players into the era in question. And I think it's 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 possibly an easier question for you to answer in your Crusader game because, as you say, the period you're covering is very short. So you've got you've got a lot of events that happen in there. But actually, in terms of the sweep of history, things don't change very much, I guess, technologically mm. and all that kind of thing. No, thinking about under the Black Sail, for example. The, the period that they're looking at is about 85 years or 80 years. Um, and there's definitely a question of, you want to give your, your, your readers a sense of historically what happened during that time, but you also need to give them an anchor point where they should be considering to start their game, and this is the position mm. here. Now, everything after that, in my view, is fair game. It, it hasn't happened yet. So if the game takes the direction where that particular event five years hence cannot happen then that event doesn't happen but as you say it's there to give the, the the timeline is there to give people a sense of the the sweep of that bit of history but actually when you start your game everything after that hasn't happened yet so it, it might not or it might happen and i think that's really important we've done something similar with tales of the old west where we are looking at a period really well you could you could go much further back you could go for a period from any time sort of the early 1800s up to Nineteen ten or something, nineteen fifteen. Even, um, we've chosen to place it after the Civil War, which is much more your traditional kind of Western feel, what you would, do with what you might mm. expect. And we are suggesting eighteen seventy-two as a kind of starting point. Um, well, I am anyway in my playtest, but you know the eighteen seventies. So I think we need to give them that kind of uh, that, that kind of suggestion, that kind of option to ground their game in that moment. But then your timeline, which I think you should have. But it should be uh, it shouldn't be too detailed. it should just be again the sweep of events um, that timeline helps the GM understand what the period is like but isn't then handcuffed to it um, as you say in order to say thatOh the place you can't go and kill governor such and such because in 1875 he does this
0: yeah, he's got plot detection. Mm
1: yeah but he can't have you know you mustn't have plot protection for your historical figures in these things it's like we were talking about a world war before we came on talking about a world war two game where you know should the players if they get the chance be allowed to kill hitler okay that's quite an extreme example but in my view if i've given them the chance to get near hitler in a game then yes if you can kill him good on you you know and you (laughs) end the war in october 1944 or something
0: okay so um... I mean, I think it's interesting what you said about technology, um, Thomas, because uh, I think a lot of basin, although basin is very fluid about what part of the 19th century it's in, a lot of it is about technology and industrialization. And so Mm. in my adventure, for example, it's kind of about the coming of the railways and the changing of a seed corn economy into a dairy economy, which is a thing that happens, all over as soon as you've got railways and refrigerated milk transport, you know, loads of places do that. Um, so I'm sure that happened in Sweden at a specific time. You can kind of, because of the, as you say, the mythic nature of this and you can kind of hand wave what year it's actually in and when that's happening. But some of those changes in technology, or as you say, in, in mythic Japan, uh, that whole thing about us growing up in a feudal society and then making our way in a post feudal, um, industrial society is, is a fascinating part of character creation. At least we haven't played it. We're playing it for the first time tomorrow morning at the time of recording, but uh, I I got really excited by that in character creation, um, particularly because it's turned, you know, a lot of our lives upside down. Um, I was pretty much scum in the feudal society, and now I'm a policeman, which makes me feel
1: pretty Very good. important.
0: <laughs> a That's pretty right. scummy policeman. I was you, you are scum, <laughs> Matthew.
1: It's okay. I, I just like to reassure yeah. you. You are scum. It's all right. <laughs> Thank you. <All> right. <laughs> don't need to worry um, there, mate.
0: So I think there are some things there. I I don't know whether I'd like to see uh, timelines necessarily in the you know in the three hundred pages of a book or something as much as I'd like to see adventures based on particular incidents that then, you know, yeah. oh yeah. So it is 1872. This is the world now or a little bit later. It is um, 1905. Suddenly you've not got a revolver. You've got a cult 1911 or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> the te- well, the, 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 adventure gives you enough clues about what the nature, the nature of the game is. Yeah,
2: so so looking at the Crusader game, right, because I was thinking about this a lot over the last few days because I'm almost finished, you know, I'm almost finished the Japanese version game. I've only got three weeks of editing ahead of me. But anyway, um, one of the things that struck me is I do, however, want to maintain the integrity of some really key big events because they're incredibly important perforation points for want a better language in the narrative of the game because they change what the characters are doing like they will fundamentally change the characters actions and direction like they have big meta impacts on the campaign and the players should respond to those Mm. and so so i do want to hang on to those right like i really do want to hang on to those and when dave does you know, 1944 D-Day invasion, the Battle of the Bulge is going to be an incredibly important historical event, which happens. Mm. The players cannot stop the Battle of the Bulge. It is going to happen and it is material. Um so I think that's important, right? And that's why I was picking on technology, because without giving too much away, um, exactly as per your commentary on C on grain to dairy, the whole game that we're running tomorrow in Japanese Vesson is all about the spread of railways. It is actually Mm. historically all about the spread of railways. And then I've overlaid a mythic element on top of that, which is actually based on a historical truth as well. So it's a mythic explanation of a historical fact. Um, Mm. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, railways went around and people started to join up to railways and that Mm.
1: changed everything
2: that changed
1: everything. So I think on your points there, Thomas, the, I think there probably are events that are so sweeping in a historical timeline that the players have no influence over them anyway, and they they just mm. have to react to them because that that yes. was that was what was what's going to happen, and that's fine. So they they should stay in. Um, on your example of the Battle of the Bulge, because again, I've I've had this thought with under the um, with war stories. Um, yeah. Yes, the Battle of the Bulge will happen, but it's quite possible in the game that the Allies would lose the Battle of the Bulge in that moment. <laughs> they would lose bastone um that the you know the germans would their their counter attack would be much more uh resilient and long lasting than it actually was in history so i think yes battle of the bulge can happen but the outcome of the battle of the bulge isn't set at that moment in the game okay because i think otherwise you run the risk of the players feeling like they're just on a bit of a roller coaster ride and they're just yeah. sat in their chair oh, yeah they're witnesses experiencing, rather yeah. than Precisely. Yeah. Protagonists. And, ad- and admittedly, you know, a squad of soldiers in 1944 probably isn't going to turn the tide of the Battle of the Bulge one way or the other. But in a historical game, your players have to feel that they're involved in it, and what ha- what they do or what they don't do actually has an impact somewhere. Let's, so us so another so they... example.
0: Battle of Bulge is, um, gi- gi- given that we're looking at airborne divisions in, or Firelock are looking at airborne divisions yeah. in that game, let's look at Pegasus. So... This is a a, a a bridge too far for those of you. Who oh, yeah. Are, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and this is a losing battle for the allies, effectively. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so there, your squad of soldiers. Um, you know, if you stick to history, they might do all sorts of splendid things. And yet, you know, they're going to lose.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think I think that you have to have uncertainty mm. in those moments. So, mm. so Pegasus has to have a chance of succeeding. You might, you know, if I was going to run that as a, as a game, you might send your players, you know, to take the, take the bridge that was too far
3: mm-hmm. or
1: maybe take the, the next bridge. But when they take that one, they've then, you know, they learn that the bridge too far is, is, is uh, you know, struggling and they go to help it. And then you have your final battle. But that gives them the option possibly of winning. Mm. And your players then are in a position to go up and help the allies win that or complete that mission successfully, in which case the tanks can start rolling off into Germany. Um, so I think, I think that's fine, but a GM shouldn't go into it thinking, okay, we've got Pegasus, they are going to fail, but let's just see how the players do. Yeah. Because then if the players get that and understand that, it's like, well, why am I going to risk my life, my character's life for mm. this bridge, when I know that we're not going to succeed?
0: The thing to do is to avoid the POW camps and let's run away yeah. from these
1: people. <laughs> exactly, let's hide. Let's, let's make it look like we've done what we've been told to do, but actually let's not get shot. Mm. So I think you want to kind of avoid that. Um, and I think that's quite an important point. Because you know, you, on the Battle of the Bulge thing, I think maybe there's even a thing that you might not have succeeded on D-Day. So if you want to play from the like, D-Day landings and you've jumped into the, the Cotentin Peninsula... That battle might go badly
3: mm-hmm. and actually
1: you might get pushed back so the war might be very different you might then market garden might then become the only way for the allies to win and so the war in holland becomes much more important in your campaign because the germans have repulsed you from the beaches of normandy and i like that i like you know i we talked earlier about sort of counterfactual history and i used to read quite a lot i haven't read much of it so recently but these games can be your chance to sort of write some counterfactual history and see how it goes and see what happens. Um, and I think for me, anyway, I like, I like the idea of the allies possibly not succeeding, you know, on the invasion of Normandy. And then what happens? Where does the war go after that?
0: Okay. So counterfactual history broadly is a group of three of us. We are for it, or uh, I just want to make sure that none of us say, no, some of these things have got to happen. And when I say none of us, I'm looking at you, Thomas, because I think <laughs> yeah. I agree with Dave.
2: Yeah, so okay, I'm about to I'm about to be controversial. Uh, I don't agree. Okay, okay get there him off. Go.
1: Get, oh, sort off, Thomas. Go on. You're only invited <laughs> always, if you agree with yeah, us. <laughs> that's right. There's always there's always a
2: possibility. Um like I've been I, I found it really fascinating, right? And and look, we're all variously well read in history, so you know, you run into I mean, we're talking at the end of the day, you get into quite philosophical thoughts in your own head about, you know, the the ability of a single individual to influence the historical outcome versus, yeah. you know, macroeconomic facts, blah, 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 blah. And that becomes a big deal. I I was thinking about this for the for the once again for the Crusade game, much more than the Verson game. And I guess for me, the horns of tin are gonna happen. And they're gonna happen because the guys in charge are numpties and you (laughs) will not be the guys in charge. And actually, historically, a whole stack of people turn up at the last council before the Horns of Hattin and persuade the king not to fight at the Horns of Hattin. Like there's a big council, they all get in and they say, we're not going to do it. This is the dumbest thing on the planet. See all the water? It's on the wrong side of that army. Let's mm. not go and pick this fight, right? It's going to end badly. They outnumber yeah. us about mm, five to eight to one, and they've got all mm. the water. There's no way that ends well. Then they all wander off. Two guys come back who happen to be, you know, Renard of Chachillion and the head of the order of the temple um, and persuade the king at midnight to do the battle. That's how it happens, right? Yeah. Now, that's, that's historically, you know, what happens. So... And I've got it. I want to run a game that's all about the characters fighting the inevitable, because we don't know what happened underneath that umbrella. We don't know what they did or what wasn't done. There's a lot of stories to tell there that are really important and interesting. And I think if you took away the horns of Hatin, you're actually taking away kind of the fundamental frame of the game. Because if if the Crusaders win the Horns of Hattin, first of all, it's actually a bit irrelevant because, you know, they're, at, they're still outnumbered 10 to 8 to 1 and they're still incompetently led and it's all going to end in tears no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually that's the crux of the game. The crux of the game isn't winning the Horns of Hattin. The crux of the game is surviving and making it to Acre and being one of those groups of knights who continue to fight for another hundred years in the crusades mm. and and, mm. and there's nothing and and so in my head that's the game that's what i want the game to be the game is about not winning but surviving because surviving is winning in that setting
3: mm.
2: so, so I, yeah i
1: guess the, the the one thing that i've sort of been thinking about particularly on the war stories thing is um because again you could say that very much about a campaign set in world war ii and you're you're an oh, war um, yeah, you know, so yep. surviving is the is the win um but then actually does that you know is there a risk and if there is how do you mitigate it that the players then feel like they're just kind of along for the ride and, mm-hmm. and their characters can't influence anything other than their own survival chances well and here's an interesting what, thing. and then what let's sorry mate, let me just finish and then what um what does that how does that make the players play does that then make the players become you know, more cautious, more, you know, less likely to follow orders. or I mean, that might be a fun thing to play. Absolutely. But I guess there is, in my mind, there is a, a risk that it might just feel like they're, they're along for the ride and that mm. might lose, might lose a little bit of, of the player enjoyment of the game. I guess that's my concern. Hearing yeah. about uh-huh. your two games yeah. though,
0: Thomas is doing a game about losing and you're doing a game about the allies and therefore winning. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah that's a fair point actually yeah so you know actually to be counterfactual the players have got to roll a whole bunch of no sixes <laughs> and <laughs> and actually to in in the long run of the campaign lose the campaign uh, mm. which might be an interesting thing uh, whereas actually you know they are going to kind of draw bro- you know they may take Pegasus where we failed to take Pegasus. There may be some slight changes, but overall you're running a campaign about victory. Um, yeah, and I'm not yeah. suggesting <clears throat> you do this, but war stories, the Nazis would be a game about losing. Losing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, whereas I don't think any players should want to play Nazis at all. Um, unless of course they're joining the Zenithians in Coriolis, Dave. <laughs> um,
1: uh I'm just doing ben, it for the money. I'm not a Nazi. I just want to get my paycheck. You know.
2: Yeah, that sounded way better when you said that it, out loud. Yeah, <laughs> <We'll>
3: it <edit, laughs> we'll that bit out. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. let, yeah, let's, okay. us quite uh, back. Uh, I, don't anyway. a, I don't mind being a Nazi if I get paid enough. Is that what I was saying? <laughs> yeah. <that's, laughs> No,
3: for we'll the record for
1: guys,
0: it's, it's, it's but very just, early on a Saturday morning, day, which was, Oh, we're not joining the Nazis. We're joining their secret police. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's better. but, but <laughs> Much better. Not wanting to do any spoilers. My character does have another very good reason to do yeah. that. Yeah. I'm just teasing you, but yeah, reason. yeah. Know. You
0: know, the, 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 the my key point is Thomas is creating a game where the players, if they're buying into that game, they're buying into being effectively on the losing side. Yeah. And if you're buying into your game, you're going to be on the winning side. So actually you're already agreeing not to change history that much. Mm. Um, And you could set up a game to say, well, let's, let's make this about changing history. Um, You know, let's let, let us create a counterfactual game where, we the brits win the american revolutionary war um and mm. that is the the history of the game or um uh, so that it's, thing is a kind of factual <clears throat> game i think we will be talking about in fact in this episode in the world of gaming which is about what happens uh it's a sort of um uh native futurist uh game that oh, yeah. Thomas you brought to our attention Mm. name's gone out of my head for a moment about you know what what does a native a a native north america look like in the Mm. 21st century
1: so i think there's an interesting distinction there though so we talk about counterfactual or you know counter-historical in those senses that's almost getting into the realms of i mean fantasy is probably too strong but you you are in complete alternate time scars there. Yes. Yeah. You are you are changing a moment in history before your game starts and so the world you're going into is actually totally different from the world you yeah. as it played out. Yeah. So it's a different it's an interesting thing actually because um I think there's a, probably a whole genre of historical games which are like that which are totally uh, counterfactual. Um I I had an idea for one which I haven't done anything about where <clears throat> um the 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 American uh tribes the mayans and the aztecs and all that come to europe first when europe's in the throes of of the plague and so you get a a west to east migration of power rather and colonization rather than the other way around and that's very counterfactual obviously because it's totally different from history but i quite like that idea i might try and work that up into something in due course but
0: i'd love to do a game with this book has anybody read this book
1: yeah i have And I love this
0: book so very much.
1: The the, the book for for our listeners who can't see it is (laughs) The Years of Rice and Salt (laughs) by Kin Stanley Robinson. Yeah.
0: And in it, broadly speaking, Europe gets pretty much wiped out by the plague. Mm. So Mm. European influence on the world doesn't happen.
1: Yeah. And you
0: follow a a bunch of characters. This would be a fabulous RPG campaign because you follow a bunch of effectively spirits um, because... the spirituality changes as well. And as the world believes more in reincarnation, your spirits get reincarnated through various things until Mm. about the sixties where they start not believing in reincarnation and they don't realize they're being reincarnated. It's fabulous, fabulous. Mm -hmm. And yet we as readers recognize they have the same spirits. That would be a lovely thing to do, but we're getting Mm. slightly off track. We are. But I think Um, it's interesting.
1: It's nice. It's a nice sort of revelation actually that you could have a total different line of games which are that sort of counterfactual, slightly mm. fantasy, um, which is not what we've come to talk about, I guess. It, yeah. But it's interesting that our conversation is thrown that up. And I so should admit, we- by the
2: way, I'm early in my game design for third cru- for the Third Crusade. So I may very well end up going, you know what, this is going to be dead boring because you turn up at the Horns of Aten and it's awful and terrible and about 100 of you survive and it's rubbish. <clears throat> and actually, I might let you do something to change the outcome. Probably not to change the trend of history. So I, d- I, don't, I don't know that survive. history
1: terribly well, uh, not, not anyone here as well as you, Thomas. So if those two guys who came and convinced the king to fight didn't get there, for example, if the players assassinated them, say, in your campaign, mm, um, mm, mm, what would have A very happened? real possibility. If he, if, he ha- if, there, if that battle hadn't have happened, would there still have oh. been a battle sometime in the future whereby the outcome would still have been yeah so again yeah. you the, the sweep of history could still be the same a bit like you know yeah. the idea of world war ii that we might lose the battle of the bulge but we'd still win the war um yeah. so, you, so your place can change that but actually you do know that at the end it's going to end badly for yeah for the christians because you're
2: still a little colony of you know um a cultural people who don't get on with the locals fighting a yeah. giant army of people who do that tends <laughs> to end poorly <laughs> You know, yeah. as a general statement, <laughs> historically speaking, yeah. um, anyway, we should we should talk about other topics, but yeah, no, it's look it's a it's really fascinating, right? Mm. Anyway, it' fascinating. Yeah. So yeah,
0: we, we've kind of strayed, but it does come back to one important thing that I think draws us back into what you wrote,, um, Dave, mm-hmm. which is how do you get your players into the heads of people mm. in that time? Because arguably as you said, the player wants to win. Um, the player's coming into whatever setting we make with 21st century attitudes, uh, which I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not arguing with, but also slightly, let's face it. Many players are slightly murder Hobo-ish in their, um or murder tourist, shall we call it <laughs> in their, uh, in their ways. And they like to keep on the move and not let law catch up with them. And, Generally, when they lose an argument against somebody, they like to kill them. Um, that's not uh, th- that may happen in some part, some historical settings quite a lot. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, the 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 West, for example, is a is a great opportunity for people to do that. <laughs> there all seem to be all sorts of people running away from the law and then becoming sheriff in the next town. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, how how do you put people in? Into the mind of an ancient Roman or a Crusader, and give them uh, without controlling their mind, give them a sort of authentic sensibility.
1: Mm. So, well, I I think I mean the Roman one is a is a good example because I kind of thought about that quite a lot over the years. Um, So, I think it's it's probably I think maybe for the Roman one, it's 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 relatively easy certainly compared to other periods of history so you you just need to uh, give a sense of um, a number of things so like the, the sort of the, the religious um, circumstance of the time the uh, you know and it wasn't there, there was a lot of ritual rather than religion I guess is the way of putting it and they mm-hmm. obviously did believe in a lot of gods and a lot of spirits but it, it often revolved around rituals so they'd have a ritual uh, you know, an offering of cakes before they go out of the house in the morning for opening the door. And and there's loads of them, loads and loads of them. So not necessarily wanting your players to role-play all of that, but having a sense that this is how the Romans thought about these things. Um, uh, other things is, you know, what was the Roman outlook? So I, I say in the piece that, I mean, ancient Rome covers over a thousand years of history. So it's very different. The The game that I eventually will do will be set in the last days of the Roman Republic. So about 100 BC-ish, give or take. Um, and I think, so for me, in that sense, I can then give a really good sense of what the average Roman, what their world outlook would be. Because they'll have recently finished the Punic Wars. They will have uh, you know, only recently become as powerful as, as, uh, you know, as a Mediterranean state as a whole. And um, their outlook is, is one of, if they get into a fight with somebody, it's a fight for survival. And that—that's where they're vicious, brutal, you know, ploughing salt into the into the ground of Carthage, so Carthage can never rise again, kind of stuff. Um, and so you've got that. You know, Romans see the world as hostile and something to control and and bring into the Roman sphere, um, rather than you know a negotiation kind of sense, as the as the Carthaginians had. You know, their wars had always been. You know you fight to a point that you get an advantage and then you make a good deal to stop the war. Um, the Romans didn't think like that, which is partly why I think um, you know, ultimately they decided that Carthage had to be destroyed, and partly why the, the Carthaginians lost. Um so I think there's things about giving a person a sense of what's the outlook of that individual. You know, so for for example, in our Western society, none of us thinks that. Civilization is possibly on the brink of coming to a close or falling down, even though there's probably quite a lot of things that might cause that. In our Roman world, I think they were very conscious that they were um, vulnerable to outside forces. You know, in about 300 BC, Rome was sacked by the Goths. And that was a very clear moment in Roman history and in Roman minds that they never wanted that to happen again. And so they became, you know, every threat was an existential threat to the Roman's existence. Um, so I want you, I think you'd want to get those kind of things across. Um,
0: and can you that... help that with mechanics? So what I'm immediately thinking of, and it's <clears throat> not, it's not history, it's Coriolis, but uh, the way that you as players uh, immediately fell into going into chapel, um, which uh, I always compare with Pendragon, but I think it's kind of true. In, in Pendragon, we're meant to be early Christians. I don't think I've once, in role-playing terms, visited a church or prayed no. to God. I mean, that—that's my fault, maybe as a crappy role player. But because the mechanics encourage it, you guys are always looking around for a chapel. Oh, here we are in a new town, about to meet a new person. Need Where's to the to chapel? the merchant. Where's <laughs> yeah, the chapel? Yeah. Um, so I think and there's that, a couple. That element of that ritual, and then you know. Yeah. St- puts you in the mindset of the characters who played Coriolis.
1: So I I think that, I think there's two things I'll say to that briefly. I know I've been hogging the last few minutes. Um, one, you could almost certainly do something around the ritual daily, little ritual thing that you could put into the mechanics somehow. The other thing is the influence of the, 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 the gods more effectively. Now they, you know, the Romans didn't worship gods in the way that we would recognize it. Um, they, they were, you could get their favor, you would you'd make sacrifices and offerings. They were often used politically, certainly by the, the senatorial classes, who would basically interpret the will of the gods in the way that suited them. Um, so there's very much a, a belief in them, but also there wasn't a fear of them in that way, that you know a Christian might fear you know, God uh, in, in modern sense. Uh, so i think there's things that you can do that if you think you've got the favor of a particular god you'll behave and act in a way you'll feel in a way that will give you a mechanical bonus if you think that you're cursed of a god you'll feel and act and behave in a way that gives you a negative that's relevant to what you think that god is doing against you Um, and then you can do stuff to propitiate that you can you can you can um you can please them by making offerings and doing things that that god will like and then you feel better about it because you think I've, I've sacrificed to mars and now i i, I can fight again you know I'm, I'm i don't need to fear that when i go into battle i've got mars behind me trying to trip me up so actually mm. i'll fight better so it's got nothing to do with what the god does for you it's all about how your character perceives what's going on and how you then are less confident or more confident or so i think those are two things certainly for the roman game that i've thought about um that you could do in mechanics but i guess more generally um as i say in the piece if you can get that kind of feeling into the mechanic in some sense then you're constantly reminding your players of that feeling of the context every time they roll a dice or every time they're doing something in the game
0: yeah that reminds me a little bit of Aquilaire, which is uh not historical but more rooted in history um fantasy rpg from spain and it's about um medieval spanish it's got a medieval spanish setting okay. so there's one of the things there about magic in that if you believe in magic you can do, you can do magic but also magic affects you more
1: mm-hmm. and if
0: you're a good christian who doesn't believe in magic you can't do magic but also you're not so affected by magic
1: yeah um, it becomes so, much more psychological of the individual's mindset yeah, rather it than actual magic
0: yeah uh, thomaso um uh, dave mentioned uh, he doesn't have the fear of god in 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 ancient rome but i guess in the crusades you've got a pretty fearsome god there
2: <laughs> yeah and i look you've got to be really careful with religion in the crusades like i mean that's probably the most obvious comment to make <laughs> Known to mankind. Oh, I'll
0: write that down. Does, it, <laughs> yeah, does this bring us case. onto
1: our stereotypes question? I guess. Yeah, we have going to come right, into yeah. that.
0: I think this might be a good um, segue. But finish yeah. what you were saying. So, first. so
2: I came up with the idea of a mechanic called fervor, which is going to be the push mechanic for the Crusade game. It sounds because good. when you read the histories, it's just true that people who really believed did superhuman things. Mm-hmm. insanely superhuman things. But they were also completely rubbish at talking to other people and committed terrible atrocities. So I wanted to build a mechanic that kind of respected that reality. So this is a mechanic that lets you... It's a little bit like aliens, actually. If, you, if mm. the vibe of the thing is sort of like panic in aliens, right? It gives you a bonus to do certain types of things, but there's a price to pay for that, and that price yeah. grows as you gain fervor, Mm -hmm. you actually suffer a reduction in your ability to communicate with people who don't share your specific set of beliefs. And that's, by the way, not Christian to Christian. That's I'm a follower of this faction. We hold these things to be true because obviously Christianity is fractured into a 100 different little sects and churches and politics is a big part of this game too. So there's a whole stack of people playing politics over religion. It's exactly like the Romans. People are using religion for political purpose every day. Yeah. Um, so I wanted a mechanic that didn't, that wasn't metaphysical and it's not, it's all about people being willing to do brave and dangerous things because they believe they can do them. Um, mm-hmm. But I've also put in um, and I've done this with Japanese Verson and I'm going to do it in this game as well. I've also tried to really make it clear how classes interact In my game so i'm putting in barriers for communication between classes that's quite deliberate um i don't know if that's going to work perfectly but in my head there's a view of you know people in the lower classes being able to talk to each other but not being able to talk to people of high class and so forth and so on so that reiterates that separation of class um in the game that's quite important and as a matter of fact historically has been important you could argue even today but certainly until the middle of this last century. there are uh, you know, class mattered, even mm. in the, you know, 1940s. It's certainly yeah. in Australia. We don't talk about class a lot in Australia, but it's true we had one. Um, we had a class mm-hmm. system. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I've done. And I guess the other thing, which isn't quite so mechanical, but probably reflects a bit on what Dave was saying before, um, I've also written, I, I mean, the thing I struggle with In a lot of historical games, is how do you allow people to play female characters to be brutal? Mm, Um, It is hard, right? So you've got your historical purists who will tell you women had no rights and did nothing. And, you know, so therefore female characters are either not allowed to play or must only play the roles women were agreed culturally could play in the period. So. And I think this is a really dangerous area of historical games. Actually, I think oh, this is the most yeah. complex and dangerous area of historical games, which touches on the sort of, you know, people did bad things to bad to completely decent human beings all through yeah. history. So I've written for Japanese Vesson a whole bit on feminists who were ahead of the curve in Japan and said, if you want to play a female feminist character in a period of history where... Everyone's kind of shutting down female rights because it's important to note, Meiji period, and there's obviously going to be debates about this, but Meiji period treated Mm. women less well than Tokugawa shogunate. They actually lost rights in the Mm. transition to Meiji. So I've written a whole piece on that and said, go for broke. Here's a bunch of historical figures who were radicals who were leading the charge. You play the woman. And you play that woman if you want to play that woman and you be a samurai and you wander around with a sword or you be a radical leader of a political party and just go yeah. bugger it. That's what I'm going to play. And medieval history is full of women who led, you know, protection against sieges, insisted on going on crusade. Most famously, Catherine of, um, is it Aragon? No, not no, Um no. <laughs> Southern France. Southern France. Aquitaine. Aquitaine. Um, yeah. She goes on the crusade with her mm. husband, who she then divorces and marries Henry II, leading to War of the Roses. Nice segue. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, so, you know, there are people. I I have a a space for that. Well, I feel it's a
0: very easy solution to that particular question, which is um, our players are playing extraordinary people in this world. Yeah. And therefore, whatever they want to play, is going to be extraordinary. I'm not going to make them conform. I remember mm. um, in years ago, years ago, um, uh, one of us, you weren't around at the time. I think you'd gone to university, Dave, to study history. <laughs> um, and Mark Speakman uh, was okay. running Bushido for us. And Bushido was one of uh, those rule yeah. sets that says, okay, you want to play a woman in Bushido? Well, you can't do anything live with it uh and at that time i was uh wanting to play a woman and i was thinking bollocks this is a bit crap it wasn't as bad as that but actually it yeah it was pretty bad you know if you wanted to play somebody exciting um and i do think yeah our games are extraordinary i think the rules of society should never really apply to our players in that Mm. regard
1: yeah it's a tough one, depending on the on the period. So I've thought a bit about this in like in the Roman period, where mm. you know women were, you know, as as in many things, they were they were they were lesser than men or considered to be less lesser than men. There were no women senators. Um, women didn't go to war. They didn't join the army. Um, you know, they were left at home. But Roman history is replete of powerful, influential women who did a lot of you know led a lot of stuff and caused a lot of things to happen so there is you know uh, i guess there's a question about like historical purity as you were saying thomas um mm-hmm. you know the very last thing i think you know anybody any of us wants to do is exclude somebody from playing a character that they want to play be that male or female yeah and um you might just say as matt says yes these are extraordinary people and if you want to play a woman gladiator, then fine. We're just going to do that. Um, the other thing in mind was wh- whether there is a... And this might be a bad thing. Um, I'm entirely open to, to your comments on this. You could you could run a, a an all-female campaign of politics and influence in Rome where they are controlling the men who go to the Senate and the men who go to war. And your players are all Roman matrons who are doing stuff behind that now that could be a really interesting campaign to run but i guess my concern is having a game that says yes play a woman it's great but if you are going to play a woman it's got to be like this and you've got to do it in there and and, um so i'm a bit uncomfortable um you know with that with that approach it it almost feels slightly worse even for me in the uh war the roses medieval kind of sense that i want to do where it feels that women probably even had less latitude than in, than in Roman times. Although, again, you've got some very, very powerful women who are, are key drivers of the history of the time. You know, as you say, you know, um, Catherine of Aquitaine and uh, Matilda and, um, yeah. Maud and others, you know, there's a lot of them and they, mm. they are very powerful. But again, how does that translate into a gaming experience for a person who wants to play a, a woman?
0: yeah i'm thinking about the 15th century uh, you know you look at the lives of a lot of those powerful women they pl- they become powerful through playing up the woman's role so you know very often they make good marriages for themselves mm-hmm. they may also yeah. be you know um, you know a lot of them are brilliant um uh, accountants for example and so build big build businesses but they do it through the figurehead of their husband, who's
1: or their often son, pretty crap who's but a man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so, yeah. um, you know, that can be, again, a bit difficult to, you know, if you want to play the protagonist <clears throat> and yet always back behind, you know, uh, an ineffectual man, you've yeah. only married because of the access he gives you into society. So that's a real challenge. And it does, it, it does bring us on, I guess, to what we should make, the last topic of this discussion, because I feel we could go on all day. We
2: could, I think, yeah. <laughs> we have to go on. In I don't know um, what you're talking. Tales about. of the Old West. <laughs> you know,
0: we've got a lot of those. We've got basically tales of the Old West. Is a story of colonialism. It is a story of white people taking stuff of people with a different skin color and treating them badly. Yeah. I, I mean, I keep quoting it, and I shouldn't really, but I do. It sums it up um, from the film Bone Tomahawk, where uh, they shoot a couple of Mexicans and somebody's asleep all the way through this and he wakes up and says, what happened? He says, oh, he was just giving the Mexicans a lesson on uh, Manifest Destiny. Okay. Um, and, you know, so that we are creating a game which is about white folk being mean to everybody else. yeah. And yet we're trying to make that in a way. and And we're trying to bring back some of the fact that actually... A lot of cowboys are mixed race and stuff like that. But we're competing against a history and a mythology that puts the white person at the centre and makes anybody with a different skin tone either a victim or a bad guy. Um, And we're determined not to do that, I believe, you and I, Dave. but Absolutely, yeah. That's a real challenge.
1: Yeah. And it comes back to the point about stereotypes, you know, that are going to be lazy and wrong and often cruel as well you know um and it, it's it, it's making it's making a game whereby you are respectful of what happened and respectful of the experiences of those people who were as you say Matt the victims of of the white colonialism but the trick is doing that in a way that's fun mm. you know? <laughs> and that's that's the real challenge um uh for doing it and I, I think I think by being respectful and being as accurate as we can to the experience, um, the lived experience of those people, you can square that circle. I think I think it can be done, but it's it's a tricky it's a tricky trick it's a tricky trick. It's a, it's a hard trick to pull off. I think without getting you know, if you get it a little bit wrong, it's going to be a lot wrong. If you see mm. what I mean.
0: There isn't a little bit wrong, is there? No, no, exactly. <laughs> there is, yeah, there is yeah. wrong, and then suddenly yeah. it's very, very, very wrong. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
1: uh, Especially like as you say, often Matthew, you know, we're two white English middle-aged men doing yeah. a game about a, a country and a period that neither of us have ever lived through or you know spent much time in. Um, so we don't understand all that cultural stuff that's in people from that, which we're trying to learn and we're doing our best to learn.
0: And, Thomas, as a white uh, colonist.
1: Oh. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, <laughs> this, as this,
3: this.
2: exactly what we're talking about, yeah. uh, I think is the line we're looking for there. Uh, I Actually, where, am I, can I cheat? I'm going to cheat. <laughs> it's hard. Um, okay. The best answer to this question was written by the guy who did Harlem um, Unbound yeah. uh, for Call of Cthulhu. Uh, without even a skerrick of doubt, he's written the best answer to this question um, that I've ever read. He makes very clear points about not trying to become or to pretend that you can be the people who are experiencing that oppression or, or colonisation. Um, he talks a lot about being incredibly respectful of those experiences um, and not treating with them lightly. But he also admits we play games a reason and part of that reason is despite our commentary at the beginning of this chat about not learning um or not setting ourselves up as educators Mm -hmm. um we are yeah we are a little bit right we're right because we're we're not gms we're designers right Mm. so let's just we're not running a game at a table we're writing a game to be run at a table and we are Mm. absolutely writing these games because. Deep in our souls, we all want to teach people about the periods of history we're passionate mm. about. Otherwise, we wouldn't pick those periods.
1: That's, that's a fair point. And I say I, I do make the point in the essay that this is the one bit that actually my earlier comments on education perhaps don't apply so well, because this is the thing that we mustn't gloss over. This is the thing that we have to call out. Because if you mm. don't yep. educate people on something like this, then you know we're dooming ourselves to make the same... And the change, the reason again.
0: that you can't gloss over it is if you gloss over it, you whitewash it, literally. Yeah, yeah it's almost it, like you, it becomes... you,
1: almost, you almost endorse it, don't you? Yeah. If, you if you say, oh, it doesn't really matter, it's okay. You know, Let's not worry about that. You're, you're kind of tacitly endorsing what happened back in those days. And mm-hmm. yeah, I certainly wouldn't a... want someone to think I was doing that. So I live
2: in a country where that happens today, mm. every day. So I live in a country where our Indigenous population has, to a large extent, third world country health outcomes, almost completely. There's a couple of outliers to that statement, but actually, proverbially, that is correct, particularly for people who live in remote and rural Australia. And I've spent a lot of my life looking at policy in that space, so it's an area I know vaguely more about than I pretend to. Um, Mm -hmm. And... Every day, those people still hear a whitewashing narrative from a whole bunch of conservative commentators. Mm. Every day. So it still happens today. It's not yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like it's history. Like, we're not talking about history now. We're actually talking about lived experience of people today. Yeah. And so I think that's why we can't do that, because actually we're not just writing as if it was a 1930s journalist writing a story about Aboriginal experience in the Northern Territory. Because those stories are still being written today in newspapers that are broad, you know, broadcast across the country. So yeah. we have a responsibility to write something different to that. Well, I feel we do. Actually, I'll be more careful in my language. Um, I feel we do because those are terrible narratives, and we're responsible in part for those narratives because we we're, mm. we're, we're children of those narratives, and that's I, I, my lived experience as a columnist.
1: Yeah. No, and I think that's a, it's a really good point because you know art should hold up a mirror to life and you know we might be being a bit overblown <laughs> i might be being a bit overblown by calling my game design art but it is a uh, a creative endeavor it is artifice if if we can through exposing the you know the the inequities of the past help somebody maybe recognize those inequities in the present and maybe do something about them or change their view around them, then that's got to be a good thing, has not it? So I think, Thomas, you're right. There is a responsibility here. Um, And I think that responsibility is more than just doing the right thing by the horrors of the past. It's about exposing the current horrors of the present at the same time.
2: Yeah, because we know from lots of reading of history, that all of those horrors are children of horrors that were conducted in the past. Yeah. Like there's no... And matter of fact, we now know, you know, there's serious genetic science that proves that epigenetics shows that, you know, you've got poverty impacts for up to three generations from when the experience occurred. So (laughs) we are walking around with people who experienced exactly what we're talking about, and they are still, quite seriously, physiologically affected by those experiences because of epigenetics. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not an illusion, right? It's not just a story. No. It's actually lived right now. Um, yeah. We're not going to get to talk about it, but I will just put in one little plug because I didn't talk about it when we talked about mechanics and then we can skip mm-hmm. over it. Light Path Generation is mm-hmm. the superpower of historical
1: games. I'm just going to put it out there and say... actually,
0: let's finish, because I want to finish on something a little bit higher than what we were just talking about.
1: (laughs) A bit more positive. We've got quite philosophical, haven't we? And rightly so. But um, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about this. This is a good idea.
0: But through Life Path Generation, in my recent playtest of um, uh, Tales of the Old West, I've got somebody who is, um, who has a a father of African descent and a mother of European descent. And I've similarly got somebody... (laughs) with a mother of native descent and a father of European descent. So immediately then my, my people have my players who are all white middle class, uh, have, you know, are, are beginning to, to have that lived experience in, in you know, and to yep. start realizing that not everybody working the old West was a white guy in a, in a, white stetson
3: yeah
2: uh, and
0: so life by generation i do think you're right is likely to be a really important mechanic in historic games
2: yep yeah i had i was really lucky so brandon the guy i'm writing the japanese version game with um has lived in japan five or six years he's done a formal japanese degree he's got a master's in japanese history and japanese culture which i don't have so i have mm-hmm. reading i don't have that sort of background um And so we worked on Life Path Generator really hard um, to give people a real, because you need a shortcut for experience. You need a shortcut Mm. for all of the Wikipedia reading and the Life Path Generator, I would argue, is that shortcut because everyone cares about Life Path Generation because it's making up your character. So Mm -hmm. they're hooked. They want to make up their character. They're actually hooked by the story. If you write a good mm. narrative structure around your life i generator, generated, they're going to buy into that story. They want to know who their character is, what they're looking like, how they're being made up. And it's a great way to impart an immense amount of background information to a player in a way that they're formally fully engaged in, right? If you give mm. them 20 pages of historical setting in a game, most of the players won't read it no. um, for good reason. They're busy. They've got lots of other things in their lives. This is not what they're here to do. They're not here to read history books. Um, but they'll buy into a life path generator mm-hmm. every time. Well, and, and so other, I think it's amazing.
1: The other big point is it's great fun. Yeah, it's great it's fun, huge fun seeing seeing your character slowly emerge from all those dice rolls. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's the most fun way of creating a character I've yep. ever come across.
2: I've I've now run the life path generation for Vers and Japan twice. Um, So you guys and um, some of the guys out of Sweden and so forth. And obviously for my own um, group. And in both cases, everyone had an immensely good time. Yeah. Everyone was like having a great time. They're making up characters. And it generated characters that are fully in the moment of that piece of history. And the characters have got a guideline for how the characters are meant to operate it's powerful. I, I think yeah. it's it's worth the investment. It takes a lot of time to do it well. We probably spent more time on the Life Path Generator than mm. we did on any other part of the writing, and we argued about it more than any other part of the writing <laughs> um, in a healthy way. I mean, you know, there's tension, and that's good, actually, and Brandon was brilliant. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's probably what's going to make the game at all interesting for most people if I was being yeah. upfront.
1: I think also, you know, for somebody like me who who doesn't know much about Japanese culture and history. Uh, it was a great, as you say, it was a great introduction and it gave me a sense of my character and where my character sits in that timeline, um, which, you know, I, you know I, my only other way of getting that would be to go and read a load of Japanese history books.
0: Yeah, and mm. not even knowing where to start, but now you've yeah. got a whole bunch of little anecdotes that, if you want to go, well, what you know,
1: like
0: your father was a gunpowder maker or something, wasn't he? And <laughs> say, so, what is the uh, history of gunpowder? a, gun, no. gun, a gun You down that path?
2: You're the gun merchant. You're the gunpowder manufacturer. If I'm yeah, so you so mine. Yeah, I was the merchant living off the oh yeah my
1: living off the part. hard work of all <laughs> your, people father, are like, your was, father
2: yeah yeah you're the father's the one whose market was undercut by his father
1: you know? <laughs> <laughs> Rightly father. so <laughs> exactly.
2: see right there right there we've got all the tension yeah Japanese exactly yeah,
1: exactly so we're, we're, we're demonstrating totally spontaneously the value of life path <laughs> Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that was right. very well manipulated, Thomas. Well done. You did. Well that done. Really. I wanted and to it put it to, path to path our thing,
0: conclusion right. is it's easy. If you do a life path generation.
1: Yeah. <laughs> just
2: fixes
0: everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks Thomas. Uh, thanks for joining us for this episode.
1: So that has been a great, great conversation. Um, enormous. Thanks to, to Thomas for all of that. Um, so next week, next week, next time in two weeks, um, yes, we, we have got um, a couple of great guests who uh, we'll be talking to: Magnus Theater and Shannon Appleklein. And we are talking um, about is there a Swedish style in role playing games?
0: Hmm. Mm. Which uh, I think you know, it's a question that came from Magnus, and we said we'd love to talk about that some yes, more. Absolutely. Um, so, if you have any thoughts. In the next couple of weeks about whether there's something uniquely Swedish about the games that uh, I believe the entirety of our listener community listens, uh, plays... (laughs) <laughs> uh, do, do drop your lines to us but we're going to be we're going to be bashing our heads together shannon is the writer of or he's the historian of the industry i think we have to call him yes, he wrote absolutely. designers and dragons four volumes so far mm-hmm. of the history of role-playing game companies and he's recently been looking at the swedish scene um we've helped him out with that and he's been listening to a few of our podcasts to find out about the early history of um of, uh, of free league and of uh uh jan ringen so yeah. yeah he's been writing that we think he might have a unique perspective and magnus is swedish and he's the one that came to us with the question about yeah. whether there is such a thing indeed so we're also talking about terminator you promised earlier in the program dave
1: yes i will i will look at that um quick start and uh yeah give some more comment on it in a, in a slightly better informed light than i've tried today
0: And we will be back in about two weeks' time. Brilliant. So it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me. And may the
2: icons bless your adventures.
1: You have been listening to The Effect Podcast, presented by Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. Music stars on a black sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing.